0: Reduce stress and sleep better this holiday season with the Plus CBD Holiday Survival Kit. As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences. Their Plus CBD Holiday Survival Kit includes CBD Calm and CBD Sleep. CBD Calm helps ease tension, soothe irritability, and contributes to a greater sense of contentment through a blend of Plus CBD's award-winning full-spectrum CBD plus L-theanine and 5-HTP. The bundle also includes CBD Sleep, which aids occasional sleeplessness with CBD plus melatonin, as well as soothing magnolia bark extract and relaxing lemon balm. Both products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. Treat yourself. Or give the gift of peaceful days and tranquil nights to your loved ones. To order, visit pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman and use coupon code HOFFMAN30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman for your Plus CBD Holiday Survival Kit. Welcome back to Intelligent Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. And we're talking about a great book it lays it all out. Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records. It's a really in-depth look at how the bureaucratization of medicine is really uh, getting in the way of the doctor-patient relationship, which really should be sacrosanct. Uh, Twyla Brace is our guest, the author, present co-founder of Citizens Council for Health Freedom, CCHF at cchfreedom.org. And, uh, tw- you know, so the other aspect of this is just the subjective experience of the patient in the doctor's office. And it's very different because it used to be, you know, you walk in, the patient walks in, you know, the doctor, you know, it's a little preliminary banter. You know, how are your grandkids? Oh, are you taking any good vacations? Uh, what do you think of this weather? And then um, the patient would proceed to unload, you know, talk about all their problems. The doctor would look the patient in the eye, uh, you know maybe jot a few notes, but there was a real connection. And now it appears, you know, the doctor's uh, sitting in a swivel chair, swiveled off to the side. The patient is talking. The doctor's peering into their computer, uh, clicking, 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 typing, typing, typing. That's a different experience, isn't it?
1: It is, and it is one of the biggest compa- complaints that patients have, uh, at least that we hear, is that the doctor is no longer looking at me, and that's not the only complaint, the other complaint is that the doctor's not touching me, <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. because there's just a general lack of uh, full body, uh, not, well, not full body, okay, I should take that back, there's just a, a, a general lack of communication, and communication happens through t- Touch and communication happens through the the look between two people, um, and that look can be caring, and, and you can you can tell that the doctor's listening, and you feel the um, ability to actually say and speak to this person in depth. But if uh, somebody is not looking at you, it's very distracting, and you start to wonder about the importance of your words and and what you should say, and you're not really having a real communication. And so this has really disrupted the patient-doctor relationship and left patients feeling much less cared for, I think, than they used to.
0: Indeed. I mean, the, really, this has changed from the time I was initially trained. And, you know, I mean, sometimes you sound guilty of old fogyism, you know. Remember the good old days? Uh, we used to do full physical exams, and we didn't have electronic medical records, and we used to put pen to paper. Um, but, you um, it, there really is a change in the nature of the relationship. And also, uh, you know, you mentioned that uh, touch is about communication. Touch is also about healing. Uh, the laying on of hands by doctors, and, and you know, n- not necessarily, you know, with a scalpel, but just that reassuring uh, hand on your shoulder while the doctor presses a stethoscope to your chest to listen to your heart rate and then reassures you that it's normal. Uh, this can be very therapeutic, and it, it's happening less and less.
1: Right. I think, and the other thing that, you know, patients aren't aware of, but me as an emergency room nurse, formerly, and you as a physician, know that while the patient is telling their story, number one, if you can get the patient to tell a really great story, you can almost know what's wrong with them. Um, but number two, it's how they tell the story. You can watch them as you're listening to them. You can see whether they look up or down. Uh, You can see what they point to. When your entire vision is focused on the computer screen, you miss all that. Mm -hmm. You're not even fully listening. I don't really believe there's something, um, you know, this whole multitasking thing. When a physician sits there with pen and paper, for instance, for the most part, they only write down the necessary things. They're not thinking about you know, clicking that box and getting that box done and, okay, we've covered that and now we've covered this box and right, they're not doing that. They're listening to the patient, they're writing down the critical pieces and they're thinking about what questions to ask to the patient. They're not thinking about what boxes to get clicked in the computer. And and patients don't have any idea that, you know, medicine and, and figuring out uh, the diagnosis and coming up with a treatment plan really require and do best with great listening skills
0: hmm Well, okay, you know, so, you know, we've run down these uh, electronic health records. And by the way, you know, one of the faults of the electronic health records uh, is the systems really often don't work. Uh, they uh, break down. They require a lot of IT. And, you know, that's what that's doing is it's creating um, a different medical class. It's a class of medical bureaucrats uh, and IT people, uh, some of whom uh, actually make far greater salaries than the doctors who administer the care, you know, the people who process this information, who set the guidelines, who uh, meet, you know, at Oaken Tables and uh, decide which treatments are reimbursable and not reimbursable. Uh, that's It spawned a whole disparity.
1: That's right. And... When um, when I wrote the book, I have a, uh, I put in a chapter specifically about costs, or a section specifically about costs called the cost of coercion, and I talk about the the prices and the penalties. And I and I talk about the direct and the indirect and the hidden and the known and the upfront and you know, all of these uh different costs and the millions and millions of dollars that it takes to put these things in and to keep them updated and to keep them running and to get the cybersecurity experts. And there was a really interesting um uh piece of information that I learned which had to do with these cybersecurity folks. And the fact of the matter is there are, um, there are probably about 50,000 job openings for hmm. cybersecurity folks. Yeah. It takes five years to get to the point where you could take one of those job openings. And there are about 50 or 60,000 people in that field already. So if everybody left their current job and went into all the job openings, right, we still have 50,000. And so, what has been created here by Congress in mandating this, in essentially to take over the healthcare system through the electronic health record, what has been created is a insecure environment. And it's not only insecure for the fact that you as a patient are going to have your data shared hither and yon without your consent, but it's also insecure from the fact that, that when you need care, the entire system that's used for ordering your care could shut down. Uh, you could have a ransomware mm-hmm. situation. You could it's a have very a vulnerable
0: system. Yeah, agreed. It's yeah.
1: Totally vulnerable when you are at your most vulnerable and the hospital has been made dependent on this system, which is vulnerable itself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's like double vulnerability.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a little with, bit with, like. With
1: insufficient, with insufficient folks around to even help you fix the problem or be there when you need them.
0: Well, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, driving a car in 1925, you know, everybody was a mechanic and the cars yeah. were simple and you could get under the hood and, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, a wrench and uh, a rag and a dipstick, uh, you could probably get your car to run. Uh, but these days it's all, you know, hardwired and it's computerized and you really need a tremendous amount of expertise to take care of your car. As a listener to Intelligent Medicine, you know that fish oil provides the vital omega-3s, EPA, and DHA that supports your cardiovascular, brain, nerve, vision, immune system, joint, and skin health, as well as your inflammatory balance. My preferred fish oil brand is Vital Nutrients, offering a line of 11 ultra-pure omega-3 solutions, including soft gels, liquid, and enteric-coated options in a variety of potencies. Vital Nutrients even offers a high-performance and nutrient-dense vegan omega supplement option. Vital Nutrients' line of ultra-pure omega-3 solutions are held to the most rigorous quality standards in the industry, ensuring maximum freshness, purity, and potency. I use Vital Nutrients myself and recommend it to my patients. For more information and to order, call 888 328 99 92. That's 888 328 9992, or go to vitalnutrients.co. That's vitalnutrients.co for the Vital Nutrients line of ultra pure omega-3 solutions. So, but, you know, we don't want to be Luddites about this, and I'm sure you agree that, you know, we want to leverage the benefits of the computer age and digital technology, and we want to make records readily available for efficiency's sake, and we also want to uh, deal with billing issues in a more expeditious way. So what what are constructive alternatives to the current system?
1: So I think there are different ways to look at it. So, um... One, you can have, you could have had without, you know, if you're going to shut the whole thing down, right? Like the Illinois pain clinic, they took a vote amongst their 70 staff and they decided to just, boom, get rid of the uh, electronic health record and go back to paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, One, it just solved so many problems for them and the other, it just cut down so many costs. And of course, now they get to offer complete confidentiality to their patients. Um, So... I don't think that you have to have an electronic health record to run healthcare. I don't think you ever had to, and I don't think you have to have it now. Um, but for patients who want to have more access to electronic health records, um, there are things like, particularly for snowbirds, that I already I know doctors who just. Give the patient's records to them on a thumb drive to take mm-hmm. with them from Minnesota to Florida. No, so that's whatever, actually a pretty right? good so idea because
0: here it is. Here's all, all your information. And great, because we want the doctors in your where you're going to be to understand what the problem is. So better to have it on your thumb drive than have it up in the cloud with all kinds of uh, potential access to people that you don't want to see your record.
1: Right, and the cloud, so, I don't know if you're, maybe your listeners are all fully informed about the cloud, but the cloud being like a server farm, right? It's Mm off-site, it's, it's like, it's got all these people's records all in their system, they have all the data, and there's even, (laughs) there's even a question about exactly who owns it and whether, you know, Epic can just shut it down when you want to have access to it because they think you've done something wrong and so suddenly all your data is still theirs and mm-hmm. you can't even access it. So, you know, there's that whole idea of the cloud where it may make it accessible. It also makes it more accessible to outsiders. So for instance, the federal government, the the Centers for um, Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, I have a quote in the book that talks about how they want to reach, they want to use the cloud to reach into the, the electronic health record to find information buried—that's their word—buried in the EHR. So it that's, really that sounds makes like it good data mining.
0: So like, yeah, right.
1: Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. So that you know, this the, all this data has become for those who want it. It's either you know profitable on the policy level for mm-hmm. policies that they want to push, or it's profitable on the um, the, the dollar level. Mm-hmm. For all the money that it's can proprietary be made, information. It's
0: actually proprietary information. We should be charging you know, the powers that be to to utilize and leverage our information to develop drugs, to develop uh, policies, develop products, uh, targeting you know the the demographics that that reveals.
1: Well, that is one thing, but when you look at who wants to have data, all the powers that be, the government, the payers, the payers and how the payers use the data to essentially penalize the doctor and limit access to the patient, Mm -hmm. then you may not want to have them use your data to come up with analytics that are beneficial to them. Yeah. right? But not beneficial to you. Um, and so the other thing, your question about, you know, Luddites, right? And we want to have this uh, efficient transfer of information and this efficient billing. But, I, you know, I guess I would say from a healthcare policy perspective, the problem that we have today, and I make that very clear in the beginning of the book, is the third-party payment system, where unlike anything else in our life, uh, we are letting somebody else pay our medical bills, and because we have let somebody else pay our medical bills, they have decided that they get to control our access to care, and their our data is theirs, and they get to control the doctors. They have decided all of this, and so I would and, really. And we've surrendered of, control.
0: We've surrendered. You know, we've surrendered. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, yeah. and it has cost us mightily. Imagine if we sh- surrender control over the purchase of our groceries and the food mm-hmm. that was. Brought to our house. Well, well we could have government wanted, manda-
0: mandated groceries, and they would that would make everybody healthy. I mean, according and, to the government, scheme. If, if they got it right about nutrition, of course they got it pretty wrong over the past few decades, and maybe now they're, yeah. <laughs> they're seeing the light.
1: <laughs> yes, and so we'd never get steak,
0: right? And we exactly. never get
1: salmon, and we we would never get the choice to make it. And those who. Brought it out of the ocean, or you know, raised it on their farms, would find there wasn't a market for it anymore, mm-hmm. and so the cows would go away, and yeah. and the fish fish would stay out there, and you know, and then you have to do it sort of on the side, black market fishing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> um and so that that's we're in a. We're in a bad situation because we have done that. And so from our organization's perspective, we have to get back to first party payment. And so I don't really talk about it much in the book, but we have started the Wedge of Health Freedom mm-hmm. at jointhewedge.com. And what we say is if you, if you look at the world of healthcare as a triangle with the payers, which is the government, the health plans, the employers, at the top point of the triangle. And then at the bottom, you have the patients and the doctors. And in this triangle, nobody knows what's going to happen. But what we all know is that the payers are going to decide, and that's why they're on top of the triangle. Mm -hmm. And the wedge is meant to take those three edges of the triangle and, and disassemble them and make them into three straight lines, patient-doctor, patient-hospital, patient-insurer. And so that we go back to the real insurance, not the health plans of today, which are not real insurance, but go back to real insurance that sort of determines the average price in the area for different procedures and different uh, chronic conditions and catastrophic conditions, and they come up with sort of a reference price, Right, And then they pay the patient who pays the hospital and they pay the doctor. Now, your listeners are probably thinking, wow, uh, my goodness, how would that work? But I had a guy who was in his 80s who when we brought up the wedge and we talked about the wedge uh, to him, he said, well, that's how it used to be in the early 70s. He mm-hmm. said, I had to have heart surgery mm-hmm. and I had an insurance company and they sent me a check for $68,000 and I used it to pay my hospital and my doctor. And it was really simple. And, and nobody interfered with the decisions. Mm-hmm. And nobody told him where he could or couldn't go or what medications he could or couldn't have. And, and but it was discretionary money on
0: the part of the, pa- the patient who can exert a market force on choices, right? I mean, because, exactly. and, and the, the market, I mean, people kind of, uh, these days it's fashionable, uh, to, Dis the market? You know, it's other market capitalism. You know, rapacious uh... uh entrepreneurs who want to you know bilk everybody of money. But the consumer uh, can make choices, and the choices will guide the available options. I mean, that's the essence of a capitalist system.
1: And we see that happening today because under the Affordable Care Act and all of the required investments and taxes and everything else that's required under, under that law. The, the deductibles have gone sky high and so suddenly, suddenly you find patients shopping around for like a smart choice MRI, which is no, no MRI over $600 or mm-hmm. they're going to the surgery center of Oklahoma, which has all its prices online and they're comprehensive bundled prices. It's mm-hmm. not, there's no additional price to it, right? Or they're going to direct primary care clinics where they pay a monthly price and they get everything that's, you know, included there. And so there is real shopping that's happening. Mm-hmm. And if And if there was an insurance company that was just setting a price, is this what we pay? Well, the hospitals would have to kind of come into that line. They would no longer be able to charge the patient or have a charge of like this one patient told me this. She said, you know, I had this procedure. It was a major procedure, and it was $43,000 on the Explanation of Benefits form. And she said, and I looked to see what my insurance company paid. And they paid something like $3,800. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she sat back and she thought, so the real price is $3,800. Mm -hmm. It's not $43,000, right? But the, but that's what hospitals are charging and that's Mm -hmm. what they tell the federal government it costs when they go to the federal government and say, well, I've lost all this, I've lost all this money. You know, I had a charge of Mm $43,000 and I only got paid $3,800 and so have the taxpayer pay me for my loss. Mm -hmm. Right? And people don't, you know, patients, people, Americans don't understand how inexpensive healthcare really could be. And how, how much scamming there's happening because of the third party payment system. And, and how it wouldn't have to be scary. Prices wouldn't have to be scary. And so this whole thing of billing and electronic billing, there has you know been electronic billing uh, but now billing is happening for every little thing and the system, the electronic health record which has incorporated the billing into it has made everything so much more expensive above and beyond whatever the real cost is of the actual procedure and the actual work that goes into that procedure and your time at the hospital.
0: What about uh, medical savings accounts? Medical savings accounts an idea that's been floated as a way of uh, rationalizing the system? but discouraged under the uh, ACA under Obamacare
1: so um, yes medical savings accounts are now they're often referred to as health savings accounts they have some advantages because they help people to shop, but you still have to take every little thing that you do through the insurance company, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and with this health savings account. And it, this connection between the insurance company and the health savings account was pushed, uh, by the health plans, these big health plans, who wanted to make sure that the health savings account had to be connected to, to one of their policies. And it shouldn't be that way. It should just be completely free. Uh, free of all of that. And then people just paid as though it were cash right out of that. And it would be, you know, tax deductible. It'd be tax free, uh, money that's used to pay for those expenses. And then, of course, Attached to that, or not attached to it, I guess, but just as another idea and something else that has happened under the Affordable Care Act is the great expansion of the health-sharing organizations. And the health-sharing organizations now have taken the place of health insurance at a far more affordable price mm-hmm. and far more friendly than these big corporations who have um, grown up around the country because of the Affordable Care Act and because of how Medicare is now being moved into the HMO, into the Medicare Advantage plans, and so, um, so there are there are better ways, there are less expensive ways. Health sharing is one. Health savings accounts detached from these big health plans, which aren't true insurers anyway, um, and then all of these cash for care systems, the wedge of health freedom, which pulls these you know we we send patients to these doctors and doctors get onto our map to say that they're here doing you know completely free from insurance companies completely free from government they don't sign any contracts their only contract is with the patient and therefore they're far more affordable there are so many ways to make it more affordable if we just get out of the third party payment system but the third party payment system is empowered to get richer and richer and richer through the electronic health record that's placed in the exam room and the hospital, at the well, bed of the hospital.
0: It, but if uh, physicians, uh, you know, or entrepreneurs charging money uh, to patients on an individual basis, uh, even if there's cost savings by eliminating the bureaucracy, won't that leave uh, the indigent high and dry? Is there does CCHF uh, have provisions for taking care of uh, the poor? You know, unemployed individuals, impoverished individuals. Uh, what about them?
1: So charity has always been the foundation of medical care. So medicine is a mission, has always been a mission, and the mission has been corrupted by all this third party payments, right? So, uh, charity and charitability have always been part and parcel of hospitals and, um, uh, clinics and physicians and practices through the course of time we actually had you know charitable hospitals in this country and they were truly charitable they (laughs) their whole purpose was to take care of the indigent to take care of those without insurance to take care of the medically needy and of course the cheapest way to take care of the indigent is to do it without going through the government without doing Mm -hmm. um um medicare medicaid or insurance it's uh, it's truly about doing it in a charitable process plus that also enhances or increases the, eva- the ability of um, patients to feel gratitude, and they should feel gratitude, not entitlement. Entitlement is a bad mm-hmm. place to put a patient. Yeah. They should yeah. feel gratitude toward the fact that they are being given services charitably, um, and it makes them feel differently towards the physician. It makes the physician and the nurses feel differently towards the patient, and it's a much mm-hmm. more friendly situation and so we would look at we encourage um, practices on the wedge to have some charitable basis. We know that doctors still do. We know that some doctors uh, refuse Medicaid but they still treat some patients Mm -hmm. charitably Mm -hmm. and they see the needs of patients. We, we, uh, We know that they can alter the cost They can have a much lower price because they know this patient and they know this patient is needy and so they're just, you know, generous in a charitable way. But we would also like to reinstitute charitable hospitals and we would like, you know, in our vision of the wedge of health freedom, there will be wedge hospitals and those wedge hospitals will be free of third party payment and they will have a charitable nature to them and they will have costs that don't include all the third party payers or all the government Bureaucracies and therefore charitability and charity will be much more easy to do when you don't have to deal with all the third party regulations and costs
0: well I hope that you have- I, I,
1: I just I just I just want to say yep. that the problem here that I see with policy today is that everybody is looking at this through the coverage lens mm-hmm when the only thing that matters in medical care is the care. And the only reason that people even think about getting covered is because they're worried that they won't get care. So the focus should be on care, not on coverage, and how to get people who need care, care, and to do it in the most affordable fashion and then the most ethical
0: fashion. Because coverage can be uh, illusory. It's like, oh, great, you're covered, but uh, no doctor will accept you, or uh, the kind of care that you're going to receive is the most perfunctory kind of care. Uh, limited in terms big, of, of options.
1: Or the big po- players, like you say, say, well, it's not appropriate for you.
0: Mm-hmm. You and, don't get it, is, we won't pay for it. Which is rationing, which is ultimately rationing. Yeah. That's correct. Okay. Well, uh, where can people learn more about uh, the Citizens Council for Health Freedom, CCHF? There's a website, uh, cchfreedom.org, right?
1: cchfreedom.org. And then if they want to go find a doctor on the wedge, they can go to jointhewedge.com. And if they want to buy the book, uh, they can find it at bigbrotherintheexamroom.com. And I would encourage anybody who buys the book to maybe buy a second one and give it to a state legislator. We've got action steps in the last section. I put action steps for state legislators, for patients, four practitioners and four congress, four separate lists of action steps. And for physicians who might be listening, to, or dentists or you know other practitioners who might be listening to this program, I would love it if you could put at least one book so that patients could start flipping through it and seeing what's really happening with that electronic health record in the exam room.
0: Indeed. Well, that uh, certainly would be appropriate because, you know, it's a big back box. People don't know. Uh, what lurks behind that, uh, that uh, computer screen? And your book really sheds light on, on the whole process. I really want to thank you very much for your uh, investigation and your dedication to getting the word out.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me on.
0: It's my pleasure. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, our guest, uh, Twyla Braze. The book is Big Brother in the Exam Room. And this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.